Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. Nerd. Noun. Definition one. A foolish or contemptible person who lacks social skills or is boringly studious. Definition two. A single-minded expert in a particular field. Example, a computer nerd. This is an old word, too. The uh, nerds at Google have a thing called the Ngram Viewer, which scans the text of books going all the way back to 1500. In other words, pretty much right back to the invention of the printing press. According to these nerds, nerd, the word, shows up for the first time in a book called A True Discourse of the Assault Committed Upon the Most Noble Prince, Prince William of Orange, County of Nassau, Marquess de la Vere and C., written by John Jarqui Spaniard, with the true copies of the writings, examinations, and letters for sundry offenders in that vile and diluf... I have no idea what that word is. Attempt. I can't tell you what nerd referred to in that book because it's written in Old Spanish and I couldn't be bothered to find a translation. I'd need a real etymological nerd for that one. The word fell into disuse after about 1725, returning to the popular lexicon thanks to Dr. Seuss in 1950. To him, a nerd was some kind of weird creature found in one of his zoos. But the following year, Newsweek magazine reported that nerd was being used in Detroit to describe an awkward sort of dude who really wasn't very cool. It kind of lingered in the slang world for the rest of the 50s and into the 1960s before it really took off in 1974 with the TV series Happy Days. Fonzie was always calling Richie and Potsy nerds for being uncool dorks. So props to Henry Winkler there. By the end of the 70s, and coinciding with the rise of the culture around personal computers, consumer technology, and Star Wars and other science fiction pursuits, the use of the word nerd became even more widespread. Remember the Revenge of the Nerds movies in the 1980s? But now, in our technological society, being a nerd is actually a compliment. People aspire to be nerds like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. Look at shows like The Big Bang Theory and Silicon Valley. We're actually celebrating nerddom. People want to be nerds because um, it's kind of cool. The geeks have truly inherited the earth. Which brings me to music. Nerdishness is now so widespread that even nerds have their own genre of music. And as you might guess, it falls squarely in the world of alternative music. This, then, is a short history of what we unreservedly, unashamedly, and unironically call nerd rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is another dive into a specific corner of the alt-rock world in an effort to better understand all the genres and sounds and scenes that are available to us. And this time we shall discuss nerd rock. This discussion could actually get a little more complicated than you might expect because there are dozens of subgenres under the nerd rock umbrella. The one we'll come back to the most is geek rock, but uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. 
While nerd or geek rock can be a sound and style, it can also refer to the look or attitude and personalities of the people making the music. This will give you a taste of where we'll end up. We need to start with what could be the ultimate nerd rock band of all time. This is Weezer. There's Weezer and Pork and Beans, a single from their 2008 Red album. If you remember the video featuring all the internet personalities and memes of the day, it's it's really tough to imagine anything more nerdy. And when you consider the quirky personality of leader Rivers Cuomo, he's bookish and neurotic and socially awkward, we have a primo nerd rock band. Now, for the origins of nerd rock, we have to go all the way back to the 1950s for a form of music called filk rock. That's F-I-L-K. The name itself is a typo. I is next to O on the keyboard. These were folk songs favored by certain fans of science fiction and horror movies and fantasy. The trend seems to have started at sci-fi conventions as participants would play filk songs and gatherings called house filks where musicians played in filk circles, usually with acoustic guitars. Filk music is so enduring that it has its own awards program called the Pegasus Awards, and there's a Filk Hall of Fame. The godmother of Filk music has to be Leslie Fish, a former anti-Vietnam War activist. She was the first person to release a commercial Filk recording. This was 1976. The following year, she released an album entitled Solar Sailors, and it contained a song entitled Band from Argo, which was all about Star Trek. The shore police were on the way. We had no second chance. Leslie Fish and an example of filk music, the earliest precursor of today's nerd rock, that's Band from Argo, released in 1977. As Leslie was doing music like that, Devo was exploring their version of sci-fi rock. They were formed in Akron, Ohio in 1973 and came up with this theory of devolution, the idea that humankind had actually begun to regress, to evolve backwards. They began to dress in a weird uniform, yellow radiation suits with hats that looked like plastic flower pots. They sometimes appeared on stage with personas like Boogie Boy and The Chinaman. Their songs were quirky, experimental, and sometimes mixed with sci-fi themes and almost always had some kind of surrealist bent. And if you look closely, there was some definite intellectual processes going on. In 1977, David Bowie heard about Devo when the wife of a friend sent him a demo tape. Bowie loved it and immediately campaigned to get them a record deal, which he managed to do. And as time went on, Devo got deeper into electronics, which only served to make them more quirky and strange. In the process, they inspired any number of new wave, post-punk, industrial, and alt-rock artists. Think uh, the B-52s, Oingo Boingo, and some of the other goofy and fun new wave bands. There's a lot of Devo going on in Nine Inch Nails, and in Primus, and yes, Weezer. Even Soundgarden was moved to cover one of Devo's songs. As for something to play, this cover of the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction from 1977 is pretty much as nerdy as it gets. The album even adapts its title, from a line in an 1896 science fiction novel called The Island of Dr. Moreau. Are we not men? The answer in this case is, we are Devo. I'm 
Devo from 1977, and I think you'll agree that that's uh, pretty nerdy. Okay, a quick detour. In December 1977, Elvis Costello appeared on Saturday Night Live. He was at the height of his angry young songwriter years, complete with his thick glasses and powder blue sport coat. Ann Beats was a writer on the show at the time and remembers watching Elvis' set and thinking, this isn't punk rock, this is nerd rock. And that led to the creation of The Nerds, a reoccurring set of sketches featuring characters played by Gilda Radner, Jane Curtin, and Bill Murray. At around the same time, and as Devo was arguing about the devolution of humankind, the talking heads were confusing people at CBGB in New York. Like Devo, the talking heads had a musical outlook that was a little bent. With a solid art school background, the group was all about challenging conventions when it came to music, and frontman David Byrne was almost definitely a nerd. In person, he was socially awkward. He later speculated that he's somewhere on the Asperger spectrum and was almost as awkward on stage. Except in performance, he came across as quirky, experimental, and occasionally paranoid. He's a great example of how punk allowed everyone to be who they were. As long as you had something to say, you should be able to say it, regardless of who you were or your musical ability. In the midst of all the punk rock in the late 1970s, the Talking Heads were producing nerdy music like this. Talking Heads from 1979 and Life During Wartime. Put that song into the context of the big mainstream rock releases of the day. Van Halen, Led Zeppelin, The Eagles, Tom Petty, Aerosmith. And maybe you can understand just how weird and nerdy that sounded. This brings us to the end of the 1970s. And things were about to get a whole lot nerdier in the 1980s. Thanks in large part to electronics. It was during this time that synthesizers and related electronics began to get cheaper and more powerful. A couple of things resulted. First of all, tech-minded people into music who weren't interested in traditional instruments were attracted to, uh, well, the technology. Second, there was a segment of the music world who equated synthesizers with the music of the future. The future meant science fiction, and science fiction, well, that's the realm of nerds. One of the great nerd rockers of the early 80s was Thomas Dolby. His real name is Thomas Morgan Robertson, and his father was a well-known academic specializing in Greek art and archaeology, which, you know, is pretty geeky. In the 1970s, Thomas spent a lot of time messing about with home-built keyboard synthesizers and recording tape. That's when his friends nicknamed him Dolby, after the noise reduction technology that was being introduced to home stereos at the time. In 1982, he released a debut album called The Golden Age of Wireless. Nerdy, that which was helped immensely by endless rotation of a single called She Blinded Me With Science on MTV. He had this mad scientist persona, complete with the white lab coat and crazy hair, surrounded by all kinds of complex electronics gear. Again, very nerdy. Thomas Dolby from 1982 with She Blinded Me With Science. For a time, nerd rock was heavily rooted in electronics, keyboards, synthesizers, sequencers, drum machines, and so on. But as the 80s wore on, that began to change. A part of that was a super influential band from Boston. 
things are about to toughen up thanks to the Pixies. Now, you may have never associated the Pixies with nerds, but there is a connection. First of all, the band was born at the University of Massachusetts. One of their members, Moonlights, is a professional magician, and their songs show a general interest in strange things, including science fiction and astronomy. And if we're honest, frontman Black Francis looked a little nerdish, certainly unlike a stereotypical rock star. Their influence on everyone from Radiohead to Nirvana to the Smashing Pumpkins is well documented, but they also had an impact on geeky bands that were to come in the 1990s. Best we take a listen to some Pixies and then keep this approach in mind when we get to a few other bands later in the program. This is Monkey Gone to Heaven from their greatest album, 1989's Doolittle. The Pixies, when you think about it, kind of nerdy, kind of geeky. Whether they want to be known as a nerd rock band is besides the point. They'd eventually become part of this particular story. And it was in the 1990s when Pixies-inspired nerd rock really took off. The explosion in alternative music in that decade allowed for all sorts of previously fringe ideas, attitudes, and sounds to wash into the mainstream. And just as we saw with punk back in the 1970s, there was a certain egalitarianism about everything. If you had something to say, well, then damn it, you should be allowed to say it in whatever manner you chose. Now, remember that alt-rock was born as a reaction to normal, mainstream tastes. From the earliest days, being weird was not only tolerated, but encouraged. People who annoyed the mainstream with their strangeness were celebrated and promoted. The early 90s saw a huge bloom in nerdy bands coming to the forefront. For example, they Might Be Giants, the two-man group out of Brooklyn featuring John Flansburg and John Linnell. They were suddenly cool with everyone. They'd been around since 1982 doing weird things like writing songs for their answering machine. They ran something called Dial-A-Song, where fans could dial a number and get a new song every day, every week, whenever. I'll even give you the number, 716-387-6962. It's been disconnected for a while, but uh, occasionally it does resurface. They ended up with a major record label deal, and in 1990, they released a record called Flood. It featured several genuine alt-rock radio hits. This is one of them. It's called Particle Man. And don't try to make sense of this unless you like bending your head around existentialist things. Otherwise, you're just going to hurt yourself. Particle Man, Particle Man, doing the things a particle can. What's he like? It's not important. Particle Man, is he a doctor? Or is he a speck? When he's underwater, does he get wet? Or does the water get him instead? Nobody knows. Particle Man. Yes, a radio hit on alt-rock stations in 1990. They Might Be Giants and Particle Man. Billboard would eventually refer to them as the Nerd Rock Kings. And that may have been the thing that brought the term into mainstream use, but we really can't be sure. At the same time that was happening, Toronto's bare-naked ladies were launching their career as weird buskers. They were almost performance artists of some sort. And they were definitely geeky and nerdy. The group was formed by Ed Robertson and Stephen Page. They both had an odd sense of humor, which they channeled into writing songs. Eventually, a band coalesced around them, and they began busking throughout Toronto. That led to some residencies at small clubs, and that led to a small but very loyal cult following. Even though their demos kept getting rejected by record labels, they kept at it. In 1991, they released a cassette called The Yellow Tape, because, uh, well, it was yellow. 
and the whole idea was to satisfy demands from fans. They sold so many off the stage that it ended up becoming a legitimate commercial release, selling nearly 100,000 copies. So let me repeat that. An unsigned Canadian band sold nearly 100,000 copies of an indie cassette in an era when major labels ruled the world. That was the first ever indie release to be certified platinum in the history of Canadian music. The labels woke up, and after a bidding war, they signed on to Warner and released an album called Gordon in 1992, a number one record and another platinum release. And this set the stage for nearly a decade of nerd rock success. And to this day, fans insist on throwing boxes of craft dinner at the band as the result of this song. But please don't do that. The corners of those boxes are sharp. They hurt. If I had a million dollars, I'd build a tree fort in our yard. If I had a million dollars, you could help, it wouldn't be that hard. If I had a million dollars, maybe we could put a little tiny fridge in there somewhere. Yeah, we could just the early and mid-90s were a great time for nerd rock. We got Weezer and the spin-off band The Rentals. There was Fountains of Wayne, Ween, The Aquabats, Man or Astro Man, Andrew W.K., Ben Folds 5, and Weird Al Yankovic, who occupies his own throne in the nerd rock world. There wasn't really a common sound, but they were all about humor and fun and self-deprecation, appreciation of the mundane, and loads and loads of irony. It was towards the end of the decade that it acquired a new name, Geek Rock. As the 1990s progressed, we began seeing more and more nerd rock bands, especially after Weezer started having platinum records. You remember that we talked about them as the archetypical nerd rock band off the top of the show. The genre had been around long enough that it began to separate and stratify into subgenres. There was nerd punk, which was like nerd rock, except in the style of punk. There was wizard rock, a whole bunch of bands inspired by Harry Potter. That scene is big enough to have its own festival, which they call Rockstock, which is spelled with a silent W at the beginning. Oh, and speaking of festivals, there was Nerdapalooza, which ran between 2007 and 2013. How about Time Lord Rock? This seemed to be mostly a British and Australian thing for some reason, maybe because that's where the TV series Doctor Who was the biggest. There is a corner of the universe dedicated to bands who were inspired completely by Star Trek. I know of a couple that even sing in Klingon. If you are interested in exploring that, uh, I suggest you look up a band called Five Year Mission. They're working to write a song for every one of the 79 episodes of the original Star Trek series. Yes, really. There's Twi Rock, which was based entirely on the characters from the Twilight series of books. That seems to have died out, blessedly. We have something that's sometimes called chiptunes, where people take songs and rewrite them so they sound like 8-bit computer music. And then we have Geek Rock. Now, as far as anybody can tell, the first band on the planet to describe themselves as a geek rock group was Nerf Herder, a four-piece band from Santa Barbara, California, whose very name screams geek. If you need an explanation, here it is. In the Star Wars film, The Empire Strikes Back, Princess Leia calls Han Solo, and I quote, a stuck-up, half-witted, scruffy-looking Nerf Herder. In Star Wars talk, a nerf is something that looks like a buffalo, and the people who tend them aren't looked upon as being very smart. Therefore, if we are going to be complete, we need to listen to some Nerf Herder. The band, that is. This was an alt-rock radio hit from 1996, and it was from their self-titled debut album. Again, self-referential, very mundane, talking about things that are just out there. This is called Van Halen. 
As far as we know, that is the first band to brand themselves as geek rock. It's Nerf Herder with their song Van Halen. In case you're wondering, they also have singles with titles like Courtney about guess who, Mr. Spock, yep, and Led Zeppelin Rules. All right, who else can we talk about? Uh, well, there's Nata Surf out of New York City. Tenacious D, Jack Black's band, definitely falls into this category. There's Wheat Us, given the subject matter of some of the Decemberist songs, you might want to include them. Singer-songwriter Jonathan Colton probably belongs on this list. Titus Andronicus. Public Service Broadcasting, a British band that uses samples from old public service announcements and educational films over instrumentals they write. Definitely nerdy. And with all the wild videos they do, you can make a case for OK Go to be part of the geek rock world. But we'll finish the show with Alt-J. Again, this is a band whose name screams geek. You may not realize it, but let me explain. Alt-J comes from a keyboard shortcut on a Mac. If you're a scientist or a mathematician or an engineer and you want to use the symbol for delta, which is the Greek letter that looks like a triangle and is used to indicate change or difference, the keyboard shortcut on a Mac is option key, the equivalent of the alt key on a PC keyboard, and the letter J, hence Alt-J. Subject matter for their songs is appropriately geeky. A photographer in the Spanish Civil War, Natalie Portman's character in the movie The Professional, references to the children's book Where the Wild Things Are, Truman Capote's famous book In Cold Blood, a plain surface covered by repeated use of a single shape without gaps or overlapping. That's a tessellate, by the way, which is also the name of one of their songs. Let's play this one from their 2017 album, Relaxer. It's called 3WW, which is short for three worn words, W-O-R-N words. The song is about a lovelorn young man who goes on some kind of walkabout and keeps thinking about a bronze statue of Juliet, the character from Shakespeare's play, in Verona, Italy. The metal on the chest of that statue is worn smooth because of the legend that says, if you rub it with your hand, you will have good luck in the future. Yeah, that's a long way to go for a song, but okay. I uh, should probably mention this before we conclude here. I did not mention a genre called nerdcore, although I probably should have. This is a corner of the hip-hop universe that is to rap what nerd rock is to regular rock. In fact, we could do a whole show on just nerdcore, reaching back to the Beastie Boys and following through artists like MC 900 Foot Jesus, Cool Keith, MF Doom, and a whole bunch more. If that sounds appealing, dig around on the internet for Geeksta Rap. That's G-E-E-K-S-T-A rap, Geeksta rap. It, it exists. If I can be a further assistance on this topic or any other, my email is alan at alancross.ca. You can also look at my website, which is a journal of musical things.com. That website comes with a newsletter that sends fresh music news and information to your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern every day. I can also be found through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. And I hope you can give me a look or a follow if you get a chance. Finally, there's the matter of the podcast. Dozens and dozens and dozens of these shows have been turned into podcasts and are available for free download through iTunes or virtually anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. Get them all. That'll keep you busy for a while. Technical production is uh, by our resident nerd, Rob Johnston. I'm, uh, I'm a nerdy Alan Cross. 
You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first? And explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. <laughs> <laughs> Corn, John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey. And and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Popstar. So it's 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 been a crazy journey. And um, and we're two kids from Brampton, Ontario that uh, went out to, you know, make art that broke out to the world. And now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our, of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into, some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. 
without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and, and that, that piece of art as far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. Because I've, I've always, I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? <laughs> what kind of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things? Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up I came up in the 80s era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos. Right. The MTV much music era watching videos by like. Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at Architects Pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Architects with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.